Well, happy uh, Canada Day weekend, everybody. Woo, isn't it awesome that we live in such a great country? No. <laughs> My sister's American, so we have lots of fun kind of competing and arguing about which country is the best, and I win all the time. So it's all good. So, uh, just if you're a guest with us today, maybe visiting uh, for the holiday weekend, my name's Kevin. I serve as the lead pastor here at Greenbelt. Uh, we are in the very last week of a sermon series called Distraction. And if this is your first Sunday with us, don't worry, you will be able to understand and track along. But what we've been talking about as a church family is the fact that you and I, <laughs> if we're really honest with each other, it's very easy to become distracted in our walk with God. But there's so many things in life that can hit us, right? Just family commitments and work commitments and health issues and money issues and kind of all the bells and whistles of of the culture that we live in can just take our hearts in different directions. Like we know as followers of Jesus that the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to pursue God and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we should love other people around us just like we love ourselves. Easy verses to quote, not always easy to live, especially when we feel God is distant and when we feel distracted in our walk with God. So we've been trying to do kind of look at the theology behind drawing close to God because I'm a big believer that sound theology, and if you're not familiar with what theology even means, theology just means the study of God and how God works among people. Good theology should change how we live. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole point of why we do what we do here. If your theology is not changing how you live, there might be a problem with your theology. <laughs> right? So that's we've been trying to make this series very practical, giving very simple things that we can do as we study and as we change our theology together on this notion of drawing close to God. <laughs> Now, I just completed a two-year journey. If you're not uh, familiar with what I have just recently gone through, I've gone through kind of this two-year Christian leadership development program. It's specifically designed for Christian leaders at midlife because what the research shows is some of us crash and burn when we hit this stage of life. For some reason, when men turn 48 years old, we seem to turn into 18-year-olds again. And we want to puff ourselves up and we do things that may not be the smartest and buy things that we can't afford to impress people that we don't even like. And we go through this journey sometimes. And so this whole two-year journey that I've been on, the first year was really focused on learning who I am and how God has made me to be me. Not to try to be someone else, not to try to live up to other people's expectations, but to know who God has made me to be, who God has called me to be, to live out of my gifting, my calling, my values, and my purpose that God has placed in my heart. The second year is focused on now that you know who you are, how are you going to lead your church, your family, your business, your ministry, how are you going to lead? Again, not out of, out of expectation, 
or demands, but lead out of who God has made you to be. Holy smokes, this journey is exhausting. First, trying to figure out who you are and go through some change and some transformation and then come back to a completely unchanged environment who has no clue what I'm talking about. Going, yeah, but we have to change everything, <laughs> right? And one of the things that God has really put on my heart this past year is the, this question. And I have been asking myself this question repeatedly for the past year. Is God pleased with me? Is God pleased with me? Now, that's a difficult question for us to wrestle with. And I share this not to be some kind of hero in the story, but so that you can kind of ask yourself the same question. Is God pleased with you? And this is a loaded question. <laughs> this is a completely loaded question, especially for those of us who come from kind of an evangelical Christian background. What that basically means is we kind of believe that the Bible is our authority. We believe the Bible is the word of God and that this is, guides us in all truth. It points us to Jesus. And we hold to a biblical worldview. And what happens a lot of times as evangelical Christians, when we ask ourselves the question, is God pleased with me? We go, yes, of course he is. Because I have faith. And we read Bible verses that say, what pleases God? Faith. I believe in Jesus. God is therefore pleased. <laughs> or when we teach, well, guess what? You can't earn favor with God. It's not your works it's not your religion it's not how you live your life it's not the choices that you make that get you into heaven it's only the death of jesus when he died on the cross he took our sin he took our inequities he became sin and the wrath of god is put on jesus to pay a price that you and i could not pay so therefore god is pleased so why would I ever ask myself the question, is God pleased with me? When there are verses that say, yeah, I don't have to do anything and God is pleased with me. <laughs> the other challenge of a question like this, and I see this vastly increasing in the hearts of Christians, is the issue isn't so much is God pleased with me. The question that a lot of Christians in our city are asking is... <laughs> Am I pleased with God? Is God giving me what I want? Is God giving me what I deserve? Is God meeting my needs, my wants, and my desires? So we sit here in this tension of, of course God is pleased, and doesn't God exist to please me because I'm one of his children and God wants to give good things to those who love him? And we live in this tension. And some of us go, well, this is a silly question to even ask because it sounds like you're talking like an Old Testament person. Where you're trying to live under the law. Where you're looking at your life and evaluating your life and looking at the choices that you make. And you must be reading the Old Testament a lot if you're asking yourself if God is pleased. Here's four verses from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul teaches again and again and again. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. We instruct you how to live in order to please God. Ephesians 5.10, try to learn what pleases God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, more than anything else, we want to please him. Galatians 1.10, then you will be able to live as the Lord wants and you will always do what pleases him. So it's a tough question. In a world that easily distracts us from the things of God, that easily distracts me from pursuing God more and more, the question, is God pleased with me, is an important question to ask if you are a Christian living in this world today. We have to ask it because the Bible asks this question of us. So we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking this together. And we're going to spend, we're just going to look at one passage. I could have pulled out dozens of passages from the teachings of Paul in the New Testament. But we're going to sit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that up. If you're a guest with us here today and you do not own a Bible, there is one in the chair in front of you. You can keep that as our gift to you. If you're joining us online and you do not own a Bible, email me, kevin at greenbelt.church, and we will send you a Bible for free. I believe every family should own a Bible and a Home Depot book on how to fix your house. Those are the two books every home should have, and a good book on doctrine, and a couple of Star Wars comics as well. Okay? <laughs> then your home library is complete. (laughs) But this is an important thing. As a Christian, we have to ask ourselves, is God pleased with my life? And if you're here today, if you're watching this online, you say, you know, I don't really think I'm a Christian. You're off the hook. (laughs) This isn't for you. This is for us (laughs) who put our faith in Jesus. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to start reading here from verse 1. That's what Paul teaches to the church. He says, and as for other, ma- other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. See, there's that verse. It's like, no, look, we've taught you this so that your life would please God. Again, what you have been taught, your theology should change how you live. Now, in the church, in the case of the Thessalonian church, thumbs up. Because Paul concludes this verse, it says, as in fact you are living. Woo, good job, Thessalonians. <laughs> Not like those Corinthians a few chapters back, <laughs> okay, who weren't doing it. <laughs> you've been taught, you've been doing it. This is great. But then he continues, but now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For the Christian who thinks you've arrived, that you have it all together, that your life and your faith is great, we urge you to do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, 
not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and we warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you all do love God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Yeah, my love for the church is great. Do it more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. A lot in these short 12 verses, Paul's theology leads to a transformed life. Paul's theology leads to changing how the church lives, how Christians live. And the big idea that I want us to spend time unpacking is this, is, is the choices that you and I make, right? The choices in life that you and I make draw us closer to God, and they make God known all around us. And that pleases God. The choices in life that I make, the choices in life that you make, draw you closer to God. They make God known all around you. And according to Paul in this passage, this pleases God. See, this letter, if you're not familiar with it, it's written to a bunch of Christians living in this city called Thessalonica. And like most of the churches in the New Testament, they would be a new church. You see, the church is brand new when these letters are being written. Paul and the other apostles were going around the known world. They were raising up leaders, raising up pastors, raising up elders, planting these new churches, equipping the saints to live out their theology, to not be distracted by the ways of the world. And so they're trying to figure this out. It was probably very messy. It was probably very confusing. It was probably not easy in living in this culture that they were living in, trying to live this way. And so these believers here would have been newer Christians. There might have been some people with a Jewish background who would have known the Jewish law, would have known the Torah, would have known kind of the scriptures from the Old Testament. But they're really kind of figuring this thing out as new believers. And what I love about this letter is Paul walks into this situation and gives two big thumbs up. You're doing a good job. You've learned it. You've changed how you live. Thumbs up. Good job, Christian. Good job, Thessalonica. Right? So he's kind of, but he, but then there's this fatherly voice. And, and maybe you dads can relate to this when your kid does really well. We're kind of in graduation season and finishing school season, right? When your kid does great. Right. All right, you got honor rolls in high school, you got the silver medal, you got a 90 average in eight classes, and you got the diploma. That's great. How are you going to do in college? <laughs> you can't sit on that high school diploma forever. You better get a good college degree next. 
you better get a good job next. Like there's something next, right? You don't just stop growing. You don't just stop pursuing God. No one arrives. (laughs) We will all arrive in the fullness of God's glory, either (laughs) when Jesus returns or our deathbed, (laughs) one or the other. Until one of those events happens, you and I have not arrived. So Paul is saying, you know, you're doing good. You're doing great. Keep it up. Don't stop. Urging more and more and more. And that's what my crest journey, this leadership journey, has done for me for the past two years. It's messed me up. (laughs) Badly. Because I want to know, is God pleased? I need to know. I'm desperate to know. Because I don't want to settle for a church that's fine. I don't want to settle for a faith that's fine. I don't want to settle for a prayer life that's fine. I don't want to settle for, hey, we had one person except Jesus in the last three years. It's just not enough. When I read this, and my spiritual father, Paul, tells me, through his writing, go, 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 (laughs) pursue more, shouldn't that be the desire of all of us who hear this text? Lord, I want to know, is God pleased? Now, to just kind of unpack a little bit of the theology, just to make sure we're not, I don't want anyone leaving here hearing something I I didn't say, so I want to make sure that we understand this theology. Right, because it happens so often. Like here in verse three, right? It says, It is God's will. It is God's will. I meet so many Christians who come up to me and say, Pastor Kevin, Rev Kev, can you help me figure out what God's will is for my life? Oh yeah, that's easy. I haven't figured out God's will for my own life. How can I figure out God's will for your life? <laughs> okay piece of cake no but when we ask that question is this god's will there's usually a condition attached to it god is it your will that i date this guy date this girl is it god's will that i go to this school or get this job or do this thing it's we we want god's will when we have the thing we want remember am is am i pleased with god (laughs) So I want to know what God's will is so I can get the thing that I want from God. But the theology is messed up when you are exploring God's will for what you've already concluded you want. Well, I'm going to date that person. I'll just keep popping around from church to church till I find the church that says, yeah, thumbs up, good job. Or I'm going to use my money this way. I'm going to just keep shopping around to find the church that doesn't talk about tithing. Or I'm going to keep shopping around to find the church that doesn't do this or doesn't say this or doesn't teach on this because I've already concluded what I want God's will to be. But Paul clearly tells us right here in the Bible of what is God's will for you. And God's will for every Christian, every Christian, no exception, God's will is that you should be sanctified. Now, that's a big old fancy word. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) 
sanctified is a the Greek word here is the Greek word hagiasmos. And it literally means the process of becoming holy. It is God's will for my life. It is God's will for you life that you would step into a journey to pursue the growth of holiness, of becoming more holy. Now, the tension with this is, again, as evangelical Christians, we go, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I am holy. The Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are perfect. You are a saint. You are made whole. You are complete in the spiritual realm. Fully alive in Christ. A new creation. But not yet. You are fully holy, not by anything that you have done, not by any work that you've done, not by any choices that you've made in your life except for giving your life to Jesus. You are fully holy. But it is God's will that you become more holy. It's the tension of the difference between sanctified and another big fancy theological word called justified. Justified means, how am I doing with God? Does God hate me? Am I going to hell? Am I going to go to heaven when I die? If Jesus returned tomorrow, would I be on his team? That's called justified. The only thing that makes us justified is believing that Jesus died for your sin. Not by being religious. It's not by volunteering. It's not by tithing. It's not by doing any church tradition that we do. It's by faith you've been saved so that none of us could boast. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that justifies us before a holy God. If you believe that, that Jesus died for you, you've welcomed that into your life, you've turned and repented from your sin, you've confessed that with your mouth, believe that in your heart, you are saved, you are justified, fully holy before God. And now in our sinful flesh, in a fallen world, we work on becoming more sanctified. A journey of living out the holiness that's real in the spiritual realm. We become more holy. So I really had to clarify that because I don't want anyone leaving here to say, Hey, Kevin said, Rev Kev said, if I do all of these things, I'm holy. Except Jesus fully holy. Look at what Paul teaches about becoming more holy in how we live our lives, being more set apart, being used for the mission of God, being used for the purposes of God. You are holy, but it is God's pleasing will that you would become holy in the choices that I make, in the choices that you make. So let's look at three types of choices from this text that Paul teaches the church for how the choices that you and I make please God in our journey of holiness. So the first thing that we got to look at is we got to look at, and I love Paul. Paul is awesome. I love it when people say, yeah, I don't like going to churches that talk about difficult things. Um, And if you like that, then don't come here. The Bible is so full of difficult things to talk about. 
and uncomfortable things to talk about and stuff. And people come to my office and say, hey, can we talk about this? It's like, oh, goodness, I'd rather not. <laughs> but the Bible talks about it, so I'm going to talk about it. So the Bible here, Paul talks about choices that we make when it comes to sex. And this is what I find fascinating about the day and age that we live in today is again and again and again and again and again and again, the Apostle Paul, in almost all of his writings, I think there might be about two or three letters, there's only two or three letters where he doesn't talk about this. He talks about a topic that he calls sexual immorality. And again, because we're trying to discern what God's will is based on the decision that I've already chosen to make, we sit around in our Bible studies, and we, and we write books, and, and we do all of this theology kind of dancing around the topic because we're not comfortable with the topic. <laughs> and we try to come up with what does sexual immorality mean? And there's no way you can come up with a working definition of Paul's little phrase, sexual immorality. You can't come up with the definition just by studying one letter. You've got to study all the letters. You've got to put it all together on a spreadsheet. <laughs> You've got to put together everything that he's talking about. Like sexual immorality is not just adultery. It's not just pornography. It's not just these things that we normally say. Paul's definition of sexual immorality is anything sexual outside of monogamous, one male, one female marriage. Anything outside of that is defined by sexual immorality. Now, again, we dance. It's not comfortable. Is it hot in here or is it just me? This is not fun to talk about. And I'm going to talk about two weeks. We're going to do two weeks on sex in the fall. So come on back and we'll get uncomfortable again. <sighs> Welcome back from vacation. Holy smokes. Okay? See, we look at this topic of sexual immorality through our modern day 2019 lens. We go, well, Paul's like archaic, Paul's a barbarian. Paul is from some hick town, redneck, backwater American town. Hey, Karen, my sister, if you're America. <laughs> Happy Canada Day, Karen. <laughs> and that's what we do. We justify what we want. We justify the behavior. We justify the belief. And we go, well, this, this book is 2,000 years old. What does this book know? Do you know the Apostle Paul lived in the city that was the pinnacle of human achievement? Rome. He lived in a day, in an age where every single sexual practice was celebrated. Paul is not some sexual prude from some backwater American town. I've got to stop picking on my American friends, okay? <laughs> it's just easy. <laughs> See, we seem to think we are so modern and we are so progressive. The only difference now is we've thrown doctors and lawyers into the mix today and politicians. It's the only real difference. The stuff we're celebrating today was celebrated 2,000 years ago. The stuff that was, is paraded about today was paraded about 2,000 years ago. There's no difference. And Paul, in that culture that embraced anything goes, said, this isn't God's will for humanity. And I know this is uncomfortable, and I know this is not fun, 
But he writes about it again and again and again and again because for some reason, according to Paul, this is important. It's important in our pursuit of God. It's important in drawing close to God. When I pastor people and I mentor people who struggle with pornography, male or female, and they tell me that God feels far, I know why. <laughs> I've been there. God has freed me from pornography. I haven't looked at it and can't remember when. But back as a non-Christian and as a new Christian, woohoo, rock on. <laughs> With entertainment, the culture said, I watch every episode of Friends. It's just fun. Sit around, it's all good. And God feels far. Why does God feel far? Why doesn't it answer my prayer? I choose what I want, <laughs> but then I'm surprised when God feels distant. I, 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 I'm surprised when God feels far away. I feel When I feel distracted, when I can't pray, when I can't serve, when I can't use my spiritual gifts when, when I'm not experiencing spiritual healing or physical healing or I'm not, there's just something wrong with God. And you start probing and you ask, well, what's in your life? What's going on? Right? And so this topic, and we're going to talk more about this in the fall because I firmly believe this topic on sexual immorality, I believe, and other pastors that I talk to and other theologians that I talk to believe, is this is the next big reformation. If you don't know what a reformation is, 500 years ago, a bunch of church leaders said, we need to get back to the Bible. We have to stop doing what church leaders say and do what the Bible says, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Because it's God's pleasing will that we would pursue holiness. This topic of sexual immorality, of sexual ethics, is the next reformation. We see churches dividing on it. We see whole mainline denominations have split down the middle on this topic. It's going to get worse. When the world finds out what you truly believe, if you hold to a biblical view of sexual ethics, it ain't going to be comfortable. Reformation never is. Transformation never is. And we can go, yeah, but this one's easier, so let's just go here. We have to ask ourselves, this is what Paul, he, like it's just fascinating that this is what he starts with. Right? It's God's will that you should be sanctified. Step one, avoid sexual immorality in a culture that's totally cool with sexual immorality. Call for the Church of Canada. God's pleasing will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Step one, Christian, avoid sexual immorality. How do we get real practical with that? Turn off your computer. If you can't turn it off, get rid of it. But I need my computer. What's more important to you, your computer or your walk with God? I've had software running on every computer and every cell phone I own to monitor my Usage, it's been on my phone, uh, my computer, 15 years. And every week an email pops up saying, all cleaned, all cleaned, all cleaned. And I'm never turning that thing off. Ever. I'm not giving the devil a foothold in my life. Ever. Turn it off. Just talk to someone. Find someone. Here's a real simple practical step. Those of you who are looking at me like you're an idiot. I'm not making eye contact with anybody. <laughs> you're old-fashioned. 
you're not progressive, you don't get it. I am not judging, I'm not condoning, that is not my heart. I hope you're not hearing that. My call to you, my one step for you is study it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Study it. It'll take some time. And if you want some help, I can help. Your life group leader can help. The staff can help. <laughs> but look at it for yourself. Are you, are you even open to the conversation? Are you even open to the concept that God wants more for you when it comes to your sexuality than you might even want? That's the first thing. Oof, got through the hard one. Now let's get through the easy one. Number two, life choices that we need to make can be categorized in what I think Paul calls harmony. We need to learn to live in harmony. You see, one of the things, and it's fascinating how he takes sexual immorality and he joins it together with how you treat each other. Because nothing will create more drama in someone's life than sexual immorality, right? Like when you're living this life and you're questioning, like I remember when I was in high school, and I was a non-Christian, okay? So I'm not sharing everything from my high school days. If you want to know about that, that's another sermon, okay? But um, it was crazy. I lived in Montreal. La belle province. My first job, no word of a lie, my cubicle, right outside my window was Le Super Sex. Okay, strip club. Like it's just there. It's plastered in front of you all over the place. And my buddies, they'd sleep and sleep and sleep with this girl and sleep with this girl. But she liked this guy, but she was crying, and she just wanted someone to hug her and all of this stuff. And it just go all over. The drama? Ooh. I was trying. I was in there, and I was like, pick me, pick me. They never did, so I thank God for that. That's <sighs> what so happens when you're on vacation for three weeks. Stick to the notes, Kevin. Stick to the notes. Uh Sexual immorality will lead you into drama, will disrupt harmony among our brothers and sisters. And this is a big thing for Paul. So you see, when Jesus taught his disciples, he said, how will the world know that you're my follower? They will know because you have sound theology, you sing the right songs, and you do baptism the right way. If you do those three things, the world will know you are my disciple. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, the world will know that you are a follower of the King of kings and the Lord of lords by what church and denomination you attend. He didn't say that. By what pastor you listen to, what YouTube channels you subscribe to, your Facebook followers, all these. No. That the world will know that you are my followers by how you love one another. And he's talking to Christians. It's not how you love non-Christians, how we love each other. And we stink at this. We've got to get better at this. Now, we have a church. We do a pretty good job of it. And what does Paul say to do if you're doing a pretty good job of it? Do it even more. You ain't done. I love it when people come up to me and say, Pastor Kev, Rev Kev, I don't feel I need to volunteer at the church anymore. I've done my time. Oh, yes, I've done my time too. <laughs> and if you want to compare time, We'll take out our spreadsheets and our calendars and we'll compare time. And then I, and then I, that's just, that's my monologue in my head. I don't ever say that out loud. <laughs> that's a monologue in my head. But what comes out of my mouth is you ain't dead. 
you ain't done. There's more to do. There's more people to love. There's more people to care for. There is another way that you can show the love of God to one other person every day, every hour, every minute, when we are not distracted. (laughs) When we're not distracted. Real practical. We have people. We're a friendly church. We're a loving church. And I know, because I hear the stories, I know how many hurting, lonely people attend here. And because I'm the pastor, I'm not allowed to say, you, you know, it's, you have no idea who needs a hug. And you can be that love, loving person to them. You have no idea who needs to get a phone call to say, hey, you want to go grab a cup of tea? You have no idea. And when you're so distracted, living life, worried about you, or just that God is giving you everything that you want, we miss out on these opportunities to love more and more. The real practical way to do it is just email, text, phone, find an area to volunteer. You volunteer five hours a week, do six. Tithe, you give 8%, give nine. Find ways. Develop the discipline to love more. This is what Crest, my, this leadership journey has done for me. Again, when I ask myself, is God pleased with me? Hopefully all of you are going, well, of course you are. Of course he is. I hope that's what you were thinking. <laughs> But I'm asking myself, how can I love more? How can I love more? How can I love lost people more? How can I love this church more? With balance and make sure I don't burn out and all of those things. But Paul tells us to do it more. So how do we do it more? How do we make these life choices to increase in harmony in the church? Well, the first thing, we have to make some choices when it comes to holiness and sexual immorality. We need to make some life choices when it comes to harmony. And then finally, we have to make some life choices when it comes to honesty. We make some life choices when it comes to honesty. See, Paul moves into the third part here, and it's a really interesting concept that he talks about. And there's lots of different teaching on this concept. I'm not going to focus on all the different ones. I'm just going to focus on one. Paul says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You see, and when you understand what the city of Thessalonica was like, this verse makes more sense. You see, when the people of Thessalonica became Christians, they had to turn from their idols and begin worshiping Jesus. You see, they live in a culture that's very different from ours. And we as Christians, we may not understand this. So the best way to understand it would probably think, would be to think of the most devoted Muslim you know. The scarf, the head covering, the tradition, the food, all these things, the cultural power of that faith. And that person accepts Jesus. That person, a lot of times, loses They lose everything. They lose everyone. They lose their family. They lose their job. They lose their security. They lose everything. See, we don't get that. We don't understand that. But this is what happened in Thessalonica. Like when people gave up their idols, we actually learned through the studying of the Bible, some of these people, you know what they did for a living? They sold idols. 
They made little statues, they carved them up, and they sold that for a living. And now they have to give up their idols. Like, these new Christians in these towns, they were a problem. See, they're kind of causing, they're making us uncomfortable. They're, they're kind of changing the way we view business. They're changing the way we view religion. They're changing the way we, we view government. They're, they're kind of a pain in the rump. They're causing a lot of problems. And so Paul says to Christians, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. In other words, Christian, you're already making a lot of problems for everybody. Stop making it worse. Look how he continues in this, right? He goes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, colon. So this adds on to that thought. You should mind your own business. Christian, church, stick our nose in everyone else's business. Knock it off. I have non-Christian atheist friends who have had more damage done to them by good Christians. And now I try to share my faith with them, and it's a stone wall. Because busybodies, judgmental, hypocritical, that's me, by the way, judgmental and hypocritical, your pastor. Okay? And we stick our nose in everybody's business. And we're so concerned about this and that and this and that and this and that. We, can, we can't even bring them to Jesus. Who cares how they live? Who cares who they sleep with? Who cares what they're doing if they're non-Christian? We have to live this life and live out this faith in such a way so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. If non-Christians don't like you, There might be a problem with your theology. (laughs) If non-Christians don't want to hang out with me, talk Star Wars and geek out together, have coffee, then I might have a problem with my theology. (laughs) So what are some practical ways that you can grow in this? (laughs) One of the ways that I've been trying to grow in this is simply this. Check my motives. Am I upset by this? Am I angry at this? Am I sticking my nose in this because I want people to do what I say? That I expect people to listen to me as a parent? My kid better listen to me. As a pastor, my church better listen to me. As a community leader, hey, these people better. Do they know who I am? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) When I start thinking that way, I might be sticking my nose in other people's business. (laughs) I might not be living the quiet life (laughs) that God wants me to live in order to win people to jesus check your motives regularly if you find you're getting upset and you're getting triggered and you're getting upset you know take a step back count to ten thousand you need more than 10 sometimes to calm down add a few zeros to it check your motives because the choices that you and i make in our life will draw us closer to god They will make God known to people around us. And this pleases God. That's God's mission for your life. That is God's purpose for my life, for your life, is that God 
This is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you could, if you're, are you going to be perfect? Am I going to be perfect? No, of course not. <laughs> We're going to mess up. We're going to make some mistakes. But the Bible teaches us how to deal with that too. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We turn to God. We trust the Spirit to deal with those issues. <laughs> if this journey of sanctification becoming more holy, <laughs> we do that. Step into that journey. That pleases God. And when I ask myself the question, is God pleased with me? Based on the evidence, it should be easy to say, yeah, my father in heaven is pleased. He's urging me to pursue and go even further. He's urging me to grow more and more. But he's well pleased. (laughs) And that's the goal for all of us. But it starts with, again, you can't just jump into this sanctification journey. It has to start with a justification journey. You've got to be justified before God. That's why I said at the beginning that if you're not a Christian, this message isn't really for you. (laughs) Because you need to be justified first. You need to realize that you have sin in your life and that nothing you could do, no life choices you can make, no religion you could follow can make God pleased. (laughs) And the only way that that type of pleasing happens is when you believe that Jesus died for you. When you believe that God sent him, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, even though he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and that he taught that the kingdom of God is here, and sinful men and women condemned him, crucified him, killed him, placed him in a tomb, where he sat and lied for three days. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, God raised him from the dead in victory over my sin and your sin. Victory over the powers of darkness, the powers of hell. When you believe that, you're holy. And then you begin the journey with the rest of us of becoming more holy as we allow the Spirit of God to help us make choices. We rely on his strength to help us to make choices when it comes to sexual stuff, of dealing with people stuff, of keeping our nose to ourselves stuff. And we follow this journey deal, you know, together as a church family, together as brothers and sisters, lifting each other up, encouraging one another, because God truly wants to do more than we could ask or imagine through his power at work in the church. And that pleases God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for this country that we get to live in called Canada and the blessings that we have in this country, the freedoms that we get to experience. But Father, I pray that the freedom and the comfort that we have would never make us complacent as the church, (laughs) that we wouldn't become so comfortable (laughs) that we would set everything up to ensure (laughs) We never experience discomfort. (laughs) There is a lot, God, in your word that is uncomfortable. (laughs) That's not easy to deal with. (laughs) But we are grateful that, God, you have empowered us through your Holy Spirit to even deal with the uncomfortable topics of the Bible. And, Father, I pray and I thank you that we are reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment. There is no guilt. (laughs) But we speak to one another in love and encouragement to build one another up, to spur one another on, 
to the good works that you've called us to. And so, Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, I pray that you would minister to any heart that might be feeling guilty or condemned. Remind them that they are loved by you and by us. And Father, as we kind of kick off this summer season, there are going to be so many opportunities for us to come alongside people, to bump shoulders with people who don't know you. And I pray that they would see Jesus in us through the actions that we choose, through the choices that we make in our lives, and that they would come to know you by how we live our lives. Free us from the distractions of this world. We're going to collect our offering now. This is just part of our worship. If you're a guest with us, please don't feel obligated to give unless God puts it on your heart to do so. If you are joining us online, there is a link on our website to give that way if God puts it on your heart to do so. I'm going to pray for the offering. So God, I just pray for this offering this morning that you would use it as our spiritual act of worship, that you would multiply it greatly and continue the great work that you are doing of making Jesus known in our city and in our country and around the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would just continue to move among us as we worship. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.